snake for? Kawadal weighed his response. He was in too much pain to care about Kabata's story, but this was a tricky situation. Kabata, judging by his expression, really wanted to tell it to him. To say no would be insulting, and Kawadal needed Kabata's army. Kabata, fortunately, misread his silence. You don't like the room, he said. He glanced around. I don't blame you. I don't like it either. Hold on. He opened the door again and peeked out. Okay, we're clear. Come on. He moved to help Kawadal up. Kabata, you want a nicer place? It's not that. It's Sikakeyu, the temple. Don't bother me with news of that madman! I'm sorry, General. I'm not angry at you. I know it's heresy, but I have no love for that fool. If you'll allow me, I'll explain. Come, let's go. Go where? Kabata put a friendly hand on his shoulder. Do you trust me? No. Ha! Good, good! The general blinked in the sun, holding his hand up to shade his eyes. Kabata led him by the arm into a beautiful garden the likes of which the old warrior had never seen. An adobe path wound throughout sculpted bushes and colorful flowers. Birds flitted from tree to tree, and a three-tiered fountain burbled in the middle of it all. They passed a little patio with strange chairs surrounding a fire pit. They passed a sculpture of a plick in winged sandals posed to run. A lush lawn spanned the garden wall to wall. The general marveled at it all. Kabata smiled. You like my garden? You'll like this even more. He steered him around the screen, and there, standing in an entryway to the garden, stood Zulok, his back to them, staring out over the wondrous expanse of the pale desert. Another piece of furniture, similar to the one in Kawadal's room, but smaller, sat between them, with thick pillows arranged around it. Kawadal, though he was happy to see the soldier alive, responded with an, Oh. Kabata's smile fell. Aren't you excited to see your friend? Well, Zulok, thinking the question was meant for him, turned around. Ah, General Kawadal, he nodded respectfully. Kabata saw it and threw up his hands. I have totally misread the situation. I thought the two of you were intimate associates. I thought... Well, never mind what I thought. The garden is nice, yes? Kawadal didn't hear him. He was too interested in the desert beyond the walls of the garden. He'd heard stories of it, but never really considered its existence. Is that... Ah, yes, Kabata said, happy to find something interesting to tell his guests. That is the Great Jasima. It stretches all the way to the sea, and the cities of Salvation and Gabriel. Kawadal remained silent, as if he knew what the crazy old man was talking about. It wasn't always like this, Kabata continued. If the book is to be trusted, it was once covered with grasses from here to the cliffs. But the people of the cities misused it, sucked the life from the soil. What book? The book of the genesis of the world. We found thousands of copies in the cities. Two servants approached, holding clay dishes filled with food. Squash and beans and corn tortillas and some kind of meat. They placed the dishes down on the table and scuttled away. Kabata gestured to the feast. Please, sit, eat, and I will tell my tale. The Tale of Kabata You think I don't know about my reputation as a madman, but I assure you I do. Yes, I don't, didn't, pay the blood debt to the Scottet. And yes, my people do not pay tribute to me. But there is a reason for this. We are not faithless. We are not heretics. Quite the contrary. As you know, I am one of the oldest of the original Tlatoni still alive. Older even than you, Coatl. When we first came to this place, it was not unusual for someone to want to explore. In fact, we encouraged it. We spread out and settled 
from the jungle surrounding the Isquit all the way to the valley in the shadow of the mountains. Look around you. This house and garden. That desert. For the longest time, this was as far as my people would explore. We didn't share the eastern pool, for in that direction there was a final point. The mountain itself. An enticing, mysterious dead end. Though we had fallen in love with the life of the nomad, we were not yet ready to brave the Jacima. We explored north and south, and in every new place, we learned amazing things. With each new discovery, our minds expanded. We became addicted to it, sought more and more. There were people here before us, Coatl. Did you know that? I don't think you believe me, but it's true. I've seen their work. These people were godlike. They made things more magical than even the Plicks, though I think they were Plicks themselves. They were from a different time, a time both far into the future and long, long ago. But in our absence, we lost contact with the Scottet and the other Tlatoni. We didn't know about the tensions that were brewing. We heard rumors, of course, but we were too busy, too enamored with the new knowledge to care. What did their petty bickering have to do with us? We never even knew the war broke out. No messenger was ever sent. So we continued with our mission. We explored, we traveled, we uncovered new wonders. That is why when Sikakeyu called the council and settled the peace, I was not there. Then one day he arrived at the borders of our village, angry at my absence, demanding tribute in an audience with me. My people were confused. We'd forgotten our place. Some were outright hostile. At least, that's what I heard. I was here with my own Tlatoni, planning our next expedition, the greatest one yet, an exploration of the western desert, when a servant came running up to us. Kabata, the man said. The Scottet, he's... I am your Scottet. What do you want? No. He gasped for breath. He must have run all the way from the bridge. Sikakeyu. The Scottet Sikakeyu. He's here. What was this fool talking about? I had to think for a moment before I understood what he was saying. Scottet? Sikakeyu. Oh, no. By the time I reached the wall, he'd been waiting longer than any ruler should have to wait. Open up the gates, I yelled. Open the gates! My guards blessed them all, winched them open with mingled expressions of fear and confusion. There stood Sikikeyu with his entire retinue, jaguar and eagle warriors, representatives of the Tlatoni, and several of his concubines. I kneeled immediately, my forehead resting on my knee. My people looked on with horror. What was their Kabata doing? This was his village. Those were his walls. Sikakeyu would not move until he was sure all of my people had seen me. Then he motioned to his warriors. They fanned out around him and into the village. There were dozens, more than I anticipated. I realized that he knew something like this might happen, but there was a good chance that we'd forgotten about him. He could have easily overwhelmed the guards on the battlements, but he chose to wait. He wanted to make a point. Kabata, he exclaimed, smiling down at me. Then he turned to my guards and anybody else unlucky enough to have been caught at the gates when he arrived. I require a blood debt for this. Later, we feasted under torchlight in the garden. You know Sikakeyu, how he is. He demanded the blood debt be paid immediately. And when it was done, his servants and warriors staked the bodies around the perimeter, so I would be reminded of who he was and what he could do. The sweet desert winds breathed strong and sure from the west mercifully wiping the smell of blood from the air and keeping the flies and insects at bay. Sikakeyu held up his face and inhaled deeply. Then he gazed out upon the majesty that is the evening, 
The hunter's sky, streaked with orange clouds, the yellow sand. A rash of stars bored out of the heavens, silver holes in a violet pool. I could see why you like it here, Kabata. I grinned, trying not to look at the bodies and the stakes. Inside, I was fuming. How dare he come up to my village unannounced and then punish my people for not being ready? I prepared my words carefully, ready to accept the consequences of what I was about to say, whatever they may be. Scottet, I began, but he held up his hand and cut me off. No need to apologize. I am a gracious leader, but you know that, of course. Gracious. There is no need to worry. I'm not worried, my Scottet. Good. Do you know why I'm here, Kabata? To be honest, I hadn't even thought of it yet. In the initial shock of his arrival, of being torn from my task and thrown into the midst of a madman's birthright, I had not, surprisingly, even begun to wonder why he had come. For a moment, terrible thoughts entered my mind. Had the great temple been overthrown? If so, by whom? Did the nobles revolt? Was I the last of his loyal men, even if by default? If that was the case, was he going to stay indefinitely? Amidst all of this mental uproar, I managed to say, No, my Scottet. He put a coy hand on my forearm. Please, Kabata, this is your home. Here I am a guest. You are the Lord. You may call me Sikakeyu. Thank you, Sikakeyu. Tell me something, Kabata. Anything. Why? Why? Tell me why I shouldn't take the blood debt from you and your family, too. He seemed to relish my shock. My eyes wandered as I searched for a response. How could I dissuade this madman from taking what was entirely his to take? I would sacrifice myself. Me. Take me, I thought. Leave the rest alone. Scottet, I, I don't... Sikakeyu? Yes, of course, Sikakeyu. Sikakeyu, I don't understand. If I'd known you were coming, you've heard, no doubt, of the mutiny. The expression on my face told him everything he needed to know, and he seemed amused, rather than satisfied. No? Hmm... Well, you didn't fight on their side, but you also didn't come to my aid, did you? I scrambled for an answer. Finally, I said, we never received word. I sent a messenger. He never arrived, Scottet. Sikakeyu. That's hardly my problem. Where is your envoy? Envoy? You no longer keep one, do you? I don't think we ever... Kabata, I've been keeping tabs on you. I'm smarter than you think, yes. That's the problem with the Teletoni. You think you know everything. You take one look at my twisted body and scoff. You remember my father and mother and their father and mother, the straight line back all the way 200 years and think he's mad. Well, I might be, but I'm not stupid. You stopped keeping an envoy decades ago when I made him pay the blood debt just to see how you would respond. Do you remember what you did? I didn't even know. Exactly. You did nothing. That, more than anything else, proves your lack of fealty. We've been very mobile, Scott Sikakeyu. An envoy wouldn't have known where to find us even if we had one anymore. Ah, yes, your adventures. The life of the lazy wanderer. He looked around my garden. The flowers, the plants, the bodies and the stakes. It seems to suit you well. My anger rose up in me again. Lazy wanderers? Is that what he thought of us? Yes, we loved it, but it was by no means easy. The endless quest, the weeks in the desert, the scratching for survival. 
we stumbled across information that made us question our existence. How little we knew. How much there was to learn. With each new artifact, each new breakthrough, our ignorance was wiped clean. But constant discovery led to constant change. Our lives were in such a never-ending pattern of adaptation and metamorphosis that it drove men mad. We came to understand that in order to survive, we had to put our certainty about life, existence, purpose on hold and leave open the window of enlightenment for anything we found. But how could I relay all of that to a man such as Sika Kayu? Sika Kayu, I said. May I show you something? Rather than speak, he only nodded, a bare movement of his head. The guards on either side of me took a clipped step back and allowed me to stand. I'll return in a moment. Imagine, Kowadal, the next scene from Sikakeyu's point of view. The once trusted noble disappears for several minutes, leaving you alone to sit silent and tense in a garden at, as far as you're concerned, the end of the world. When he finally returns, you are agitated and hiding it poorly, but the rules of civility and your own breeding prevent you from doing anything more than just staring. Stare you will, because the fool is carrying some kind of strange contraption made out of wood and metal. The bottom is a box with a lever sticking out of the side. An enormous bell blooms like a flower into the space above. The box is decorated plainly enough, but the bell, which is fashioned out of some kind of strange alloy, is etched with intricate patterns, flowers, and other imagery. He sets it on the table next to you with a plunk and you jerk back, offended. Then, as if to further insult you, the noble, a brave man who once defended your temple, who vanquished enemies on your behalf, who personally explored and mapped the new world into which you were expelled, places a black disc on the surface of the box, grabs the lever, and starts to crank like a madman. The disc soon begins to spin, faster and faster. Put the needle on the edge, I said, ignoring Sikakeyu's clear dismay. What? The needle, I said, nodding at the box. It's on that arm. Pick it up and put it on the edge of the disc. Sikakeyu leaned over and peered at the machine. He lifted the needle and looked at me, a question in his eyes. I nodded. He dropped it on the edge and it bounced, landing a centimeter away with a scratch. Music poured out of the bell right into his face. He gasped and scrambled backward out of his chair, knocking it to the ground. Even his guards seemed astonished. Don't worry, I said, still cranking. It's strange at first. But just listen. I watched his face as he struggled to comprehend, just as I had done my first time. The music was loud and angular, with distorted instruments and a pounding rhythm that drove straight through the middle of it all. There were drums, but drums that sounded nothing like ours, and no rattles, no flutes, no horns. A man sang over it, in a voice both high and gritty. I didn't understand the lyrics entirely, but they were beautiful and aggressive, oddly poetic. Singing to an ocean? I can hear the ocean's roar. Play for free, I play for me, and play a whole lot more. Singing about the good things, and the sun that lights the way. I used to sing on the mountains, as the ocean lost its way. I cranked and cranked while Sikakeyu rose to his feet. He circled the device, staring intensely. He put his hand on the bell, and once he saw that nothing would hurt him, he put his ear up to it. Then he laughed. The guards did too, sharing a glance. He took a step back and listened. And when the song was over, he clapped, and I stopped my exertions. What do you call it? He asked. I don't know. He circled it again, tracing the designs burned into the wooden box. You found this out there? This, and many more wonders like it. From that point on, Sikakeyu's attitude changed. He asked to see, and I showed him everything we found, 
strange mechanisms, weapons we could not understand, furniture covered with unusual cloth, armor, tools, packages filled with liquid. Look at this, I said, holding up a cylinder made out of the same metal as the bell of the music device. I took a knife and cut it in half on the table before him, revealing the beans and water within. Are those? Beans. Yes. He snapped at one of the guards and pointed at it. The guard paused, reluctant, and it wasn't until Sikakeyu snapped again that he scooped up a tiny amount and put it into his mouth. His eyes lit up, and he chewed and swallowed. He turned to the other guard and said, It's good. Sikakeyu waited for the guard to show signs of being poisoned, and when he didn't, when he was certain the beans were safe, he took his own taste. His eyes lit up as well, and soon he was scooping more and more into his mouth. After that, he fell into a deep silence. Thinking he was angry, I drew into a corner of the garden and waited, waited for the inevitable. I had no idea why he had fallen so sullen. A few minutes before, he had been delighted. Kabata, he finally said. I don't expect you to understand, but believe me when I tell you that I am tired of ruling these people. The petty squabbles between the Tlatoni, the sad mewling of my people, the idiot farmers. Not once in a thousand years have I been interested in anything that's gone on over here. Until now. You have shown me many things, many amazing things. Do you know where I can find more? I think so, I said, shocked at his gravity. Then why haven't you gone there yet? I explained to him the problem of the desert, the miles of wasteland stretching from the threshold of my garden. My scouts report sightings of birds, I said, miles and miles away, a sure sign of the sea, though I never saw the sea itself. Sikakeyu was unimpressed. He stood abruptly, and his guards snapped to attention. Find these places, Kabata. Bring back to me treasures such as what you've shown me tonight, and I will erase your family's blood debt. The sun set red over the desert, and Kawadal's stomach grumbled. Aha! Kabata laughed. I see my story has stirred your appetite. Would you like some of the beans I described? I don't care what you bring me. Just bring me something. Kabata laughed and excused himself. I'll be back with a feast, he said. When he was gone, Zulok turned to the old warrior. He's lost his mind. Too much time out there, under the sun. I don't know. He seems excited, but not crazy. Well, where are the items he described? The music maker, the weapons. Maybe this god Ted took them already. Zulok frowned. I can see why he would want the weapons, but the other things... He was a Scottet, Kuatl said, and left it at that. General, what are we doing here? We need his army. Look around you. Do you see any men, other than servants? Kuatl thought on it. No, but that doesn't mean... What does it mean, then? I don't know, but Kabat is a strange man. I think maybe he might be trying to tell us something. What, that he has no more army? That much is apparent. We need to... Here we are, Kabata called. He was leading a team of servants carrying trays laden with food. Fruits and vegetables, cooked meat, beans, wild rice, tortillas. To drink, they presented casks of wine and clay pitchers filled with polk. Zulak gave Kowadal a meaningful look, and Kowadal shook his head gently. Not yet. They feasted, and Kowadal, once weary with his wounds and unable to even think about eating, now found himself unable to stop. Kabata bit into a tortilla filled with beef and wild rice. That's a good sign, he said, the eating. When they were done, they sat back in their chairs, sated and content. The servants cleared the dishes and lit the torches anchored into the garden walls, stacked logs in the fire pit. Kabata offered Kawadal his shoulder to lean on, and the three walked across the patio and settled into some comfortable lounge chairs surrounding it. Are you still feeling well, Kawadal? Better than before. Good. 
and I will tell you about what we found in the desert. At first, nothing. We traveled west for days, then north, then east, meaning to zigzag across the sand to cover the most amount of space as possible. The days blazed with unimaginable heat, dry and draining, unlike the humidity of the jungle. We took to traveling at night when the temperature dropped and sleeping during the day beneath our open canopies. As we ventured, we began to discover things of interest. An oasis brimming with green trees and grasses, the water cool and dark. We camped there for days, enjoying the break from the constant sand and heat. We even found the field of dates and figs that had clearly been planted and farmed, but which was now overgrown and wild. Then there were the skulls and the skeletons, bleached white over the years. These were not the remains of any animals we'd ever seen. Some of them we would now recognize as Taquani, but we found others. Long, serpent-like spines with misshapen heads, exoskeletons of massive spiders with scorpion tails, a ribcage as tall and as wide as a Scott Tet's temple. Even stranger were the pieces of metal embedded in the bones, threaded with wires fused to each limb. We were amazed. The more and more we found, the more unnerved we became. We kept the more manageable bones as souvenirs. But those discoveries, as wondrous as they might have been, were not the types of treasure Sikakeu wanted. As the days ticked by, we found nothing but sand and bleached skulls. My men grew bored, then frustrated. I considered turning back, but Sikakeu's threat hung heavy over me. My men didn't feel the same way. Whispers of mutiny began to reach my ears. I took the blood debt from one of the loudest, and while it put a stop to the whispers, their hostility grew. I truly thought that they would kill me in return. Then one evening, as we slogged through the endless sand, we came upon a monolith built on a high dune. We stopped in our tracks, uncertain as how to proceed. We'd come across nothing like it in all of our days in the desert. I did not want to risk losing any more of their confidence by appearing afraid or indecisive, but I had no idea what it was. I need not have worried. One of my men, a jaguar named Jahar, ran straight for it, yelling, Yaha! Yaha! A miracle! Once he went, the rest followed. Soon they were dancing around it, knocking on its sides. It made empty metallic sounds wherever they struck. I heard Jahar say, A door! and watched his black form disappear inside. Come on! he yelled from within. It's safe! And that is how we found the first of the outposts. They were all built the same way. Square and tall, made out of thick, strong metal. My men, suddenly intrigued by the discovery, forgot all talk of mutiny. Many of the outposts were military in nature, stocked with weapons and supplies. But some were different. Did you come across any remnants of old houses during your journey to my home? Ah, I see you did. You did indeed. It would seem that many of the citizens of Gabriel and Salvation had chosen not to live in the safety of their walls. Or were expelled. In those that still remained intact, we found other items, the skeletons of the furniture upon which we now sit, more music boxes like the one I showed Sikakeu, weapons not unlike those the Plix use today, other devices of all sizes that seemed to have no purpose scattered throughout the rooms, hanging on the walls. The first of the iron boxes appeared in the sub-basement of the third outpost. A jaguar named Mahu found them under a trove of swords and arrows, sixteen in all. The basement was ice cold, but the boxes were warm to the touch. One of us held our hand to it too long and began to burn. Can I open it? Mahu asked. I nodded, though I was still uncertain. The lock was old and rusted, and it didn't take very much effort for him to prize it open with one of the swords. As he did, the basement was flooded with warm amber light. It illuminated his wide eyes. It's beautiful, he said, gazing at it. Inside of the box was a pool of liquid, amber, 
just like the light it produced, thick and full and filled with energy. The room warmed as we all crowded around. Mahu leaned forward, his hand outstretched, and it was as if I saw it in slow motion. I knew what he was doing was dangerous, and I wanted him to stop, but I couldn't tear my eyes away. Finally, right before his finger grazed the surface, I said, Don't! But it was too late. The liquid leaped out of the container, covering his hand, his forearm, his shoulder. Mahu screamed and shook the affected arm, trying to rid himself of the poison, but it flowed out of the box like a river, and soon he was covered in it. It consumed him head to toe in seconds, and then it funneled its way back into the box, where it pooled just like before, waiting for the next victim. We stood motionless, shocked. Then I grabbed one of the swords and used it to close the lid. Don't ever do that, I said, looking at the rest of the men. They nodded solemnly. The next morning we developed a rotating system to tote everything we found back to my village, especially any of the iron boxes, to save for the scottet. We fashioned poles to slip through the handles on the side so we could carry it without touching the metal. Once every seven nights, two would carry the treasure back, while two more returned to take their place. The problem, my friends, was not the bravery of the men or the will of their leader. The problem was the desert. Have you ever traveled across it? No, of course you haven't. Until the Plicks laid down those iron bars for their great machines to travel on, nobody had. There's a reason why, too, and it isn't because of the heat or the distance. Any fool can find water in the desert if he knows where to look, and we knew where to look. No, as you probably already guessed, the problem came in the form of the live versions of the skeletons we found. Upon finding and looting the fifth outpost, and after sending two men home with the usual cash, we discovered them. There were twenty of us, including myself. Jahar had proven to be quite reliable, and I came to trust him as a second-in-command. Whenever we discovered a new outpost, we made it a habit of sending out revolving patrols to search for more oases, to map the landscape, to scout for enemies. When one returned, another left. Jahar took to the task with enthusiasm. Guileless and happy, he reminded me of myself before the years stacked up, along with the deaths, the pain, the sadness. I longed for that feeling again when life was an adventure and I trusted my elders simply because of their age. That is the bitterness of wisdom, for once you gain enough, you realize that men are men, flawed, arrogant, vain, and, yes, capable, caring, and charitable, but mere men nonetheless. This is what I have learned. Let me tell you something else, a truth more important than any of the others. If anything else, the desert is the great equivocator. And while the Scottet might take the blood debt from me for saying so, know this, in the desert, no one man is better than the other. One night, several months into our journey, I was awoken from my sleep by the cries of the guards standing on the battlements atop the latest outpost in which we had taken up residence. The outposts had been brilliantly constructed, with four different floors accessible only by ladders and hatches. They built a basement and a sub-basement in each. The basement clearly meant for survival, as the metal magnified the heat of the day, and remaining in the middle of the structure could spell a boiling death, and the sub-basement for food storage. It worked so well that among the containers of beans and corn and fruit, we found whole sides of meat. I didn't recognize the animal, still frozen in storage boxes anchored into the sandstone. I had retired for the first time in almost a day and a half, choosing to take my rest in the hottest part of the afternoon. It felt like I just dropped off when I heard the guards, but when I climbed to the top of the monolith, the stars shone out of the midnight blue sky, and the moon blessed the sands with her pale light. Two men were running towards us from over the dunes, as fast as the sand allowed. The moon was so bright that I could see the shadows of their footprints. The one in the lead was yelling and waving his hands, but he was so far away that I couldn't understand him. Can you hear him? I asked the guard. I think. What's he saying? 
He's just repeating himself. They're coming, they're coming. I looked out over the desert, but all I could see was the dark outlines of the dunes. What's coming? The sand seemed to ripple underneath the surface several paces before the running man. He must have seen it too, or felt it, because he stopped and held out his hands. Then something huge burst out of the wasteland, and he had just enough time to scream before it collapsed on him. And then he was gone. We saw a writhing mound of flesh and scales, the scrabbling of millions of feet, and the flick of a long tail as it burrowed back underneath. The second man didn't even slow down to look. He ran right through, making a straight line for the outpost. It was his only hope. Behind him, the sand began to ripple. I looked around the battlements. There, in the corner, an atlatl. I snatched it up. Get out of the way, I said, backing up. The guard scooted to the side, and I took two steps and launched the spear to the left of the running form. I snatched another one up and threw it, too, aiming a little farther to the left. The ripple changed direction slightly. But when no more spears hit the sand, it zeroed back in on the man again. He had almost reached us. The guard suddenly understood, and together we threw spear after spear, trying to cluster them as tightly as we could. And it worked. The beast veered off, and our man, I could see now that it was Jahar, made it to the base of the outpost. We stopped throwing the spears, and the beast veered back towards us. Jahar opened the metal door with a whine. I heard a crash close, and the bar slammed shut. The ripple sped toward us, faster and faster. At the last moment, it burst out of the desert again. And again, I saw the rippling of flesh and the scrabbling of thousands of feet. It slammed into the middle of the outpost, and the guard and I were thrown to the floor. The building shook and boomed, but did not budge. I scrambled up and lunged for the edge, peering over the side. The monster had fallen back into the sand, dazed. A few of the guards threw spears at it, but they glanced harmlessly off its twisting body as it slithered away, finally burrowing back into the sand and disappearing with a flick of its tail. Down at the base, Jahari collapsed just inside the door. Someone had given him a container of water, which he held in a shaking hand. His clothes were shredded, and several deep wounds cut canyons in his arms and torso. I knelt down in front of him, trying to catch his eye, which rolled around unfocused. Jahar! Jahar, you're here! Kabata, he said. I smiled. Yes, Kabata. Here, take a drink. He looked at the cup as if he didn't know what it was. Then he brought it up to his cracked lips. He was burned and peeling all over his face and arms and legs. In some places it was so bad that it shone raw. He took a sip and coughed, then took another. We have to leave, he said, after he caught his breath. No, we're fine. Th that thing is gone. He shook his head. No, no, it's not. There are more. I paused, pondering this information. Was he delirious? Delusional? How could there be more when in all our travels we hadn't even seen one? I decided to humor him. It wouldn't help to argue. How many? I asked. He fixed me with his good eye and held my attention. Thousands, he said. Thank you, everybody, for listening this week. Don't forget to check out LilithFilm.com, JamesKnoll.net forward slash BG, and you can support this show for as little as $1 on Patreon.com. It's Patreon.com forward slash Mad Tales. You guys rock. I'll see you next week. Music.